Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Well, we want to be a church that takes the gospel to the world, and so we uh, are studying the book of Acts so that we might know how it is that we can begin to change our world for Christ, and we rejoice in that opportunity. Will you stand with me for the reading of the word? I'll pick up the reading this morning out of Acts chapter 19, verse 11, just six short verses and a wonderful story there. Here it is. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, And Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled or exalted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is a great discussion in Acts chapter 19, and I know you're probably waiting for your Christmas messages because there's Christmas trees and stuff, and we're almost there. Just keep coming back. We'll get there uh, at some point here in Christmas. But this is a really, really important discussion in the world in which we live because when you look at what happens here and what's about to happen here, you get a really good look at what happens when Christ impacts a culture. Now, in order to help you understand that, I got to take you back uh, to the city of Ephesus and just talk about it briefly. Um, In the city of Ephesus, there was this temple called the Temple of Artemis. And Artemis was a Greek goddess and she was the goddess of fertility. And so you can imagine what a worship service to the goddess of fertility looked like, right? Um, And it was sexual depravity and all sorts of other things. But there was something else that happened here at the uh, Temple of Artemis. It also, because it doesn't look like a temple. In fact, if, if I were to ask you, what does that building look like in America? You would think it was a bank, right? Like it looks like certain banks, that, used, that now became restaurants in various places, all right? But, but it kind of looks like that, and in fact, it was that. Now, I don't know if um, the banks in Swedesboro actually decided that they would build their banks after, after the Temple of Artemis 100 years ago, but, but that's kind of what it looks like, and that's what it was. Because there was money, this place worked as a bank. People invested here, people loaned money from here. You say, what in the world? That's right. Does this sound like our culture? Sex and money, okay? There was. At the top of this hill in Ephesus was this particular temple. And though there was an idol there, the idols that you're about to get introduced to we're not tied to the, the, the silversmith making idols. It was tied to the idols of their heart and the fact that they thought that was going to get interrupted. And here's what I want you to see. This entire city is about to be turned upside down by one man speaking one name. Okay? That's it. 
And that's important for us to remember because it was simply Paul speaking the name of Jesus that totally shifted the culture. Maybe today you say, Phil, I'm just one person. Like, I'm just one person. What difference can I make? I want to remind you that what you're about to read in this story is about one man speaking one name and turning an entire city upside down. When Christ impacts a culture, things happen, okay? And so it's important for us to remember that. In fact, uh, one commentary says it this way, the structure of Artemis of Ephesus worship was integrally woven in the fabric of daily life and culture. This was their culture. The temple actually functioned as the banking and financial center for the province. Large amounts of money were deposited and borrowed from the Artemisian. So here you go. Here's what I want you to see. Sometimes we think the way to change a culture is simply to change the laws, right? And I'm not downplaying the importance of that. I'm upgrading the priority of changing an individual life over that, okay? So I'm all for the fact as American citizens, we should have a part in our laws, laws and the system in which we live. But that's not the primary way that we're gonna see our culture impacted. In fact, we're gonna find that in this discussion this morning. Changed lives will have a greater impact than changed laws, okay? Changed lives will have a greater impact than changed laws. And the church's responsibility and our responsibility individually as members of Christ is to go about the work of changing lives, just one life, one life. In fact, you're gonna see in this passage, godly laws can restrain sinners, but they cannot change them. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what we believe as Christians, that it's not the laws that change someone, the laws only restrain someone. And in a moment, you'll find as we read through the passage together, there's a riot that's gonna break out. And that riot, at the end of that riot, Paul wants to go in and talk to them and his friends say, don't go in there, you're not gonna survive it. Um, that riot is actually restrained by a governing official stepping forward and saying, listen, you have courts, we have courts, we've got law systems for handling this. If you have a complaint, bring it to the courts, get out of here, we'll see you tomorrow, okay? That's my paraphrase, that's not the King James, okay? That, that's what's happening there. And is the laws didn't change the people, only the Spirit of God is gonna change the people. So when Christ impacts a culture, you say, what is my responsibility? Here it is, threefold. Walk by faith, focus on the individual, prepare for impact, okay? Walk by faith, focus on the individual, prepare for impact. Uh, in that first verse we read in Ch Acts chapter 19, verse 11, we discover that God is the one with the power. We are simply instruments in his service. God is the one with the power. We are simply instruments in his service, in fact, I, I love this. Just look at the way this verse starts. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. It wasn't Paul. It wasn't Paul at all. God was the one doing the extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And there's something unique here, like basically handkerchiefs or aprons that touch Paul's skin were actually carried away in healing people. Um, I know you can hear that kind of thing on... TV, if you turn on your TV to the right station at, you know, 3 a.m. in the morning, okay? You can hear that kind of thing happening. Let me draw a massive distinction here. We believe that it happened here because it's in the scripture. But can I point out to you something else? That is happening. If you send in your gift, we'll send you the handkerchief, okay? I just want to underscore that is no way near what the Apostle Paul was doing. He is still working as a tent maker laboring 
and then doing the work, as Pastor Scott said last night, when everybody else goes to see, keeps teaching from 11 o'clock to four o'clock in the siesta time for whoever will come. Paul was working. He wasn't simply saying, I'll give you something if you give it in return. The miracles are happening here because God wants people to know that what Paul is about to say about the gospel is authoritative. That when Paul is speaking to the Gentiles and not just the Jews, the Greeks, and not just the Jewish people about the gospel, it has power. That's why it's happening here. Now, in the passage I read to you earlier this morning, you may notice that there were some other people who tried to do what Paul was doing. And so they said, hey, listen, that's pretty cool. We do exorcism on the side. That's kind of our side gig. So um, why don't we try what Paul was doing? And that's because even among the Jewish people, there were a lot of what they believe kind of magical incantations, they could say. And so, and, 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 um, non-biblical records of that time point that kind of thing out. Here's what I want you to see. Um, it's probably best understood this way. The name of Jesus is no magical incantation. The of Jesus drives out the demonic and his spirit only works through those who, like Paul, confess him and are committed to him. What was true for them is still true. In the name of Jesus is all the power needed to drive out the demonic forces in every age. Okay. In fact, most commentators say that what Luke says here is actually maybe Holy Spirit-derived um, humor. Okay. Now, just for a moment, you say, what do you mean by that? When the, spirit, the evil spirit speaks out and says, um, I know the name of Christ, and I recognize Paul's name, but who are you? Okay. I just want you to imagine, like, if you had been in the room and said, hey, let's try this new word. Let's try the name of Jesus. And that's what you say. And there's seven of you. And all of a sudden, the demon speaks, the demon-possessed man speaks back to you and says, I know Christ and I know Paul. Right about then, those seven men should have looked at each other and said, Houston, we have a problem, okay? Because they don't have any power, and yet they have just said something, and the demon-possessed man is talking back to them. The power is in the name of Jesus, but you just can't say the name of Jesus. It has to be tied to your personal relationship with Jesus. It's not a magical word. It's a powerful word. And for those of us who are believers, we recognize this. We sung about it this morning, that he came from heaven to a cradle in the dirt. And I was just captured as we were singing that song, again, right up through the gospel to an open tomb. When you read the gospel record, there is so much power in what Jesus did because of who Jesus is. That's how it works. God is the one with the power. We are simply instruments in his service. Here's the other thing I want you to see. God often gives the desire without revealing the future day-to-day -day direction. You and I have to walk by faith. When we step out on something God has asked us to do, we don't have the power we have dependence on the Lord. But here's the other thing I want you to see. God may give you a desire, but he, he's not gonna reveal the future day-to-day -day direction. And if you are one of those people who tends to be on the control side of the spectrum, okay, that's gonna be really difficult. But I'm just telling you, that's the way God works. And let me show you that. Acts chapter 19, verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Now, we're gonna get there in upcoming days, but just let me give you a snapshot of what's about to happen. Paul believes God wants to take him to Rome. 
And you might say, well, that should be easy enough. Find the first ship, find a ticket. That's not how it's going to work. He is going to go back to Jerusalem with an offering. He's going to be falsely accused in Jerusalem. He is going to spend a year and a half in prison waiting to go to Rome because he appealed to Caesar. At the end of that time, he's going to say, um, they're going to say, that two individuals are going to say, um, leaders are going to say, listen, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, he's done nothing wrong. He should be set free, but he appealed to Caesar, so let's put him on a ship and send him to Rome. And you know what happens to that ship? Okay. It's shipwrecked. That's exactly right. And you say, well, that's bad news. And Paul swims to shore. And you know what happens when he swims to shore? He's bitten by a poisonous snake. Okay, that's the next thing that happens. You say, what is this? Is this a series of unfortunate events? Okay. No, this is how Paul will go to Rome. Okay. Wow. All he knows is that God wants him to go there. He doesn't know the day-to-day events. When you are convinced that God has you do something or engage with someone in a conversation or whatever that may be, I just want to tell you, you can be resolved between you and God to do it, but he's not going to reveal to you often the day-to-day activities. You say, well, I sure would like to know that, and then I'll do it, okay? See, the Christian walk is a walk of faith. We say, okay, the Lord wants me to do that. That's what I'll do, and I'll trust him with the outcome. Here's the second thing you need to do. When Christ is going to impact a culture, you and I should not simply be saying, let's do a bigger rally, let's do something massive. That may be for some people to do, but for the average person, including myself, in this congregation, it's not about impacting more and more people. It's about us focusing on the individual. That's how Paul does it, and that's what turns the city here upside down. So there's four things you need to see here. Focus on the individual. Godly fear, spirit, power, sacrifice, and disruption. Okay, here we go. Godly fear is often the starting point of change, so don't downplay it. Godly fear is often the starting point of change, so don't downplay it. In fact, you can see this in Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19, verse uh, 17. Because remember, after those seven guys came running out of that room, um, they were naked and beat up, and they said, what happened? They said, we spoke the name of Jesus, and the demon said he didn't know us, and, and there's no power, but there's power in the name of Jesus. That brought about a response we've never seen before. Here's what I want you to see. Look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, the whole city, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of Jesus was extolled. Wow. It's remarkable. When someone says to you, I don't know God, but if he's the way you describe him, I'm scared to death, okay? Don't say, right, it's not gonna be okay. Godly fear is this starting point of change, so don't downplay it. When we talk to someone about their relationship with God, we speak, the gospel speaks to that. Listen, your relationship with God was interrupted, a holy God, because of your choices, because of your sin, because of your failures. You are, whether you acknowledge it or not, at war with God. Okay. Randy prayed that way this morning. God saw us in our rebellion, he said, and redeemed us. Romans 5 says, but God commends his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the point. Godly fear is the starting point of change. Now, godly fear is not, fear is not a good motivator in our relationship with Christ once we enter into the gospel because we are set, we are set right with God, right, through Christ. But if it's a starting point, don't downplay it. Notice something else. The text says that fear fell upon them all. That fear 
impacted basically the whole city of Ephesus. But 20,000 people are about to have a riot in a stadium a little later in this chapter, and so that fear didn't stick for them, but it did stick for some. And you'll see how that shows up in a second. Spirit power is the key to change, so surrender to it. Spirit power is the key to change, so surrender to it. We saw already that God was the one doing the doing the healing and the miracles through the hands of Paul. But I would just remind you of this passage as well in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I pointed this verse out to you a couple weeks ago. I just want to remind you again, this is the transformation process. It isn't about you doing something better. It's about God transforming you. I had a chance to understand that the other day because... uh, we have these two little granddaughters who we had the privilege of having with us. And, um, and you know, I, I put on a grandpa hat so I can act a little silly and sing a little too loud or something like that. So that's what I was do. She's not as verbal as her older sister. But she's standing at the counter and I'm singing and she says, sing softer, okay? And so I sing softer and she says, literally, this is what she says, she says, try harder. And then just to make sure I got it, she said it a second time, try harder okay, to sing softer, all right? Like, okay, okay, you know, your wish is my command, all right? So here's what I want you to see. We sometimes think that it's only about trying harder. It isn't about trying harder. The work for the Christian is surrendering our desire, our efforts, our idols, and the Holy Spirit begins the transformation work on the inside. Here's the third idea. Sacrifice is the price of change. Don't balk at it. Sacrifice is the price of change. So don't balk at it. I want you to see something in this passage because it's setting up the riot that's about to happen. In Acts chapter 19, verse 19, there are some who we read in verse 18, also many of those who now believe, who are now believers came confessing and, indul- and divulging their practices. These were believers. They had already trusted Christ, but they were tied to the old way of doing things, which in Ephesus was massive on the magical arts and incantations and those kinds of things. I want you to see what they sacrificed, okay? Here it says, and they counted the value. So the number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. There's a book burning downtown, right? And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, a piece of silver here is the word that's also translated elsewhere as a drachma, which which is a day's wage, okay? So they flipped him a silver coin for work in the day. 50,000 pieces of silver, 50,000 days' wages, looks like 150 men or women working an entire year each, okay? This is a massive amount of money. You say, man, it would have been cool. Like, they should have, like, sold those someplace, right? And build a church off of them, okay? I'm just telling you, that's not how they saw it. They said, we want nothing to do with this. And even though we paid a great deal for these books and these books of incantation and these scrolls, we're burning them, okay? Because here's why. Because sacrifice is the price of change. There's a good chance that if you know the Spirit of God has been asking you to change something in your life, 
it's going to require some sacrifice on your part. It may not be financial. It may be a relationship. It, it may be the fact that you will take a step of faith that you know God is asking you to do, and, and it's going to cost you. I chose this phrase carefully, don't balk at it. Balking, you may remember, is that baseball term where the pitcher looks like he's going to throw, but then he stops short. That's how it often is. We, we say we're going to sacrifice, and then when we get ready, we kind of balk at it a little bit. Don't. When Christ impacts a culture, sacrifice is the price of change, so don't balk at it. And then know this, disruption. Disruption is the result of change. Expect it. Now, I'm going to introduce you to a disruption of a major magnitude, okay? The whole city is going to be disrupted. In fact, that's what we find in verses 23 and following. In fact, I'll read a portion of that. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerns the way of Jesus. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith whom silver shrines of Artemis, Artemis brought no little business to the craftsmen. I, I love the way that Luke is just kind of saying, hey, listen, it wasn't a business being transferred. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, that's modern-day Turkey, by the way, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Now, remember I said, you're about to turn a culture upside down. When Christ impacts the culture through individuals, it changes everything. Paul isn't, Paul doesn't have a massive Instagram following. He doesn't have a blue check mark behind his name. He is one man speaking one name, the name of Jesus. And he is disrupting the entire city. Now, just imagine, in the middle of a, in, in, there in Ephesus is the, basically the bank, which is a sex temple, but that's the bank, okay? That's the bank that is managing money from all over Asia, and everything is about to get flipped upside down in a moment because all of these tradesmen that make their little idols, because people would travel to the, by the way, pillars. They were 60 feet tall each. This is a, it is one of the seven wonders of the world, of the, of the ancient world, was the Temple of Artemis. Just to put that in perspective, 60 feet, foot tall pillars. Our steeple is 45 feet off the ground, okay? Free news for you if you ever want to win an FBC trivia quiz, okay? It's 4 or 15 feet above that, and you're going to have 127 pillars. People come to the, they say, hey, uh, can I get uh, Artemis? To hang on my Christmas tree? Oh, they didn't have Christmas trees, okay. Okay, but you get the picture, right? They're making a ton of money. But nobody's going to come anymore because Paul's preaching idols are nothing. This disruption is massive. And you need to prepare for impact. And not unlike our world, here's what happens. They start a riot, okay? That's it. The silversmiths get together and they start a riot. Now here's what you need to know about this riot. You ready for this? What others are upset about is not really what they're upset about. That's how it always works. People say they're upset about one thing, but that's not really what they're upset about. In fact, let me show you that. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. But look at what the riot's about, 19 verse 28. 
When they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater. Okay, here's what I want you to see. The whole city is thinking it's about the worship of Artemis, the Greek goddess of fertility. It's not. It's just about the money. That's what it's about. And that's why whenever there is a riot and you try to answer the riot, okay, it's, it's not going to have any impact because that's not really what it's about. It's about some other desire that someone can't have their desires met. And that's what it's always going to be about. It's very rarely about what they're saying it's about. Now, just let me give you a picture so you see this, okay? Because I showed you that temple, but there was also a stadium in Ephesus that was about the size of the Philadelphia Union Stadium, okay? So we met 20,000 people jam into the stadium, and they go on, the Bible says, for two hours screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, okay? They're all screaming that for two hours. This is a real riot, okay? Somebody's gonna get hurt in here, okay? And here's what I want you to notice. Just look at this text again. Here it is. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, what? Okay. This is the guy that they're upset about who says, listen, there's 20,000 people in there. Just let me go in there. They're all screaming. They won't even hear you. Paul, they're going to kill you, right? Paul says, I just want to go in there and talk to them. Okay. Now, just imagine momentarily, if you had the 3,000 people and they were all there screaming, and you knew you were the cause of their screaming, okay? How many takers? Anybody taken that opportunity to walk in there? Okay. Now, and this isn't, just, this isn't just Philly, okay? Okay. These are people who want to kill you, all right? They're not saying they want to kill you. They want to kill you. And here's what I notice in Paul's life. Here it is. What idols you serve will need to be purged as well. Paul says in Galatians, that he desires the applause of men, right? He says, I've had to say, listen, I would rather pursue the applause of heaven than the applause of men. Galatians chapter one. He says, I'm not after the applause of men. No kidding, because they're yelling, Paul, that they want to kill you. And Paul says, let me go in there. Now, his friends pull him back, and there's some leaders in the town of Ephesus who it shows that the gospel was actually impacting leaders, and those leaders um, actually say, listen, you, you can't go in there either. We call those the Asiarchs. There they are. But when Paul wished to go in among them, the crowd, the disciples would not let him go. That's not Jesus' disciples. That's the disciples of Paul there. And those are the people, by the way, that uh, Scott mentioned last week, those 12 men or so who would probably become elders of the Ephesian churches. The disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his, now that's the group of people who were leaders, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Okay, because there's... Somewhere, Paul overcomes his own idols. You say, well, Phil, they're arguing about idols. Yes, but they're not really arguing about idols. They're arguing about the idols of their heart, which is sex and money. That's what they're arguing about. Paul deals with his own argue, uh, idols, which are, listen, I would rather, in my heart, I'd like to know that I have the applause of men, Galatians chapter one, but I desire only the applause of God. You say, well, how do I know if I have an idol? Okay. Here's your answer. If you want to know if you are an idol worshiper, ask, how do I respond when I don't get what I want? That's it. How do I respond when I don't get what I want? For some of you, that may be security. How are you responding? 
with anxiety because you don't have security? You're an idol worshiper. For some of you, that may be respect. How are you responding? With a sense of entitlement? Like, respect me. You're an idol worshiper. Whenever you respond in a way that is ungodly, you are revealing what you're worshiping. That's the point. If you want to know if you are an idol worshiper, ask yourself, how do I respond when I don't get what I want? And that brings us to the last one. What God is doing is rarely seen in the moment. You need to prepare for impact. What God is doing is rarely seen in the moment. He is in the city of Ephesus. Um, And you may know that there's a book in the Bible by the name of what? Ephesians, that's right, which is the letter that he will write to the church in Ephesus. And he's going to write that from Rome. But there's this really cool element that you may not know. Ephesians 1, 1 opens up to the church of Ephesus. But actually, in some of the earlier manuscripts, there was actually a blank there. Like the name Ephesus had been erased out. You say, what? Why would that have been the case? We inserted the idea in some manuscripts of the idea of Ephesus because um, that letter to the church of Ephesians was written in such a way that it was circulated to multiple churches. So the churches actually would read it outside of Ephesus and say, hey, listen, um, we're a church on the outside of Ephesus, but that letter isn't really written with our name on it, but we'll just call it, um, like if, if that letter came into New Jersey in that moment of time, we would read it as the letter to Fellowship Bible Church in Seoul, New Jersey. Okay? We'd insert our church's name into the letter. Paul is writing that letter from Rome in imprisonment, awaiting on his execution. He may, get, he, he may get out temporarily, but sooner or later he's going to be executed by Rome anyhow. That's what happens, right? What God is doing is rarely seen in the moment. This riot that has taken place, this city that is... A handful of disciples who are saying, oh my goodness, the entire city is against us. What are we going to do? All of that's happening in that window. And yet, Paul will write later to the church of Ephesians. Now to him, that is God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. I remember uh, there's times where people have quoted that verse to me and, and, um, and it's left an impact because of the circumstances that I was facing. One of the founders of our church, Roy, used to often quote this verse. Um, he and Ron and Danny, they had the vision to, by faith to say maybe God would grow a church. But they were only two or three dozen people when they first started meeting. And Roy would always quote this verse to me. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. He would say, Phil, God is doing something that you can't even imagine. And I know pastors are supposed to be the ones with a strong faith, right? But I kind of just leaned into other people's faith at times. And that's the picture I want you to see. That here it is. What God is doing is rarely seen in the moment. It's going to come later. That's why you have to step forward by faith. In fact, just wherever you are in life this morning, 
whatever struggle you're having, wherever you're thinking, I'm a little concerned about security, I'm a little concerned about respect, I'm a little concerned, take your idol, put it there, and just read this verse with me. There it is. Can you say it with me? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, it's been a privilege to look to your word this morning. It may be thousands of years old, but it's as new as if we just opened up a page in our world and in our culture. Thank you for reminding us this morning that while governing authorities are important, they are not the highest priority way that we are to see a culture changed. You've asked us to do it one life at a time, and that makes all of us responsible, not just somebody else. It makes all of us looking around and saying, what life would you have me touch? Who would you have me impact? Help us do that well in a way that gives you the glory we would pray. Lord, we desire deeply to see our culture changed and the world in which we live turned back to you. Help us see in that. And may we give you the glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen.